Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about classic albums that we trashed when they first came out in our review section. We're also going to talk about new music from Beck and in reader mail, publicity stunts that have gone terribly wrong. And that was Wow, the new song from Beck. We're here for our What We're Listening To segment with Brittany Spanos. Hey. Hey, Brittany. You uh, wanted to talk about the Beck song today, mm-hmm. which I'm loving. Yeah. Beck, as we know, like you know, he won Album of the Year, mm-hmm. Grammy, which shocked a lot of people, yeah. in- including Kanye West, uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago for the uh, for Morning Phase morning yeah. record. So this is kind of a moment for him. This is like his first record since then. Yeah. And a huge shift from Morning Phase being this very low-key folky album and then him kind of going back to the slack rap sort of dancey sound with wow right and, that, and that's kind of his like traditional move right yeah. you know he'll he'll, <laughs> back, you know, he'll be like you know sea change and then midnight <laughs> vultures or one foot in the grave before Odele. yeah so beck fans know what's coming but this song is kind of like the most it totally it's like totally unforced and like fun yeah. you know it's fun to listen to i mean it's definitely him going back to sort of his weirder side. I was probably in the minority a little bit with Morning Phase. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I I really liked a couple songs yeah. from it, but I, I thought that the entire album kind of dipped in a, in a bunch of places. Like, For sure. it, it wasn't up to the level of, like, Sea Change, which is, I, I feel like, his classic kind of acoustic record. So I was, I'm totally happy for him and ready for him to kind of be fun back again. Yeah. And this song definitely has, like, some cool breakdowns, <laughs> which I'm really enjoying. It's like, right, right. Definitely the dips of the beat. It's definitely one of the strongest beats I've heard this year. And it's For just sure. very like low key and dancey, but not too dancey. It's kind of a mellow dance song, which I really enjoy. Because my first encounter with Beck was Wero, and that album right. was just so much fun and E Pro and Girl yeah. and all that. So I kind of I enjoy this sort of I think Guero, back to that. I think that's that's definitely my like favorite Beck record from yeah. the last like fifteen years <laughs> or so. So yeah, he's got a new album coming in uh, like September or October. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear what the rest of it is going to be. <laughs> Your second song is a, a song we have talked about already on the episode, but this is a remix. One uh, Drake's <laughs> One Dance, a remix by Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber teased it originally, I want to say, like, last week before the OVO Sound Radio, which happens every Saturday. And then Drake... That's Drake's uh, show on Apple Music. Yeah. It leaked a little bit in some various clubs, and then Drake finally officially released it. And it's really interesting because One Dance is Drake's first number one song, and I didn't actually realize this, but What Do You Mean was also Justin Bieber's first number one single. Wow. And it's weird to think about these two artists who have been so prominent for five-ish years, a little bit over that, um, to have not reached that's their... That's nuts. So, like, Hotline Bling wasn't a, wasn't a number one song? It was number two. Wow, that's crazy. And so crazy. it was just breaking. I remember he wrote this long message on Instagram about how he was like, everyone has almost made Hotline Bling my number one song. <laughs> and never hit it, but One Dance really broke through for him. And it's cool to see that this, like, more tropical world music sound that both of them are really hitting on. And these two artists who have been working together for so long, like Drake was in the baby video and they continue to sort of be there 
and each other's music in weird ways. So and and Bieber like fits seamlessly yeah. into this song. He's totally at home in the beat and kind of does some interesting things with yeah. his like phrasing. It's it's totally cool. I mean, and he changes the lyrics a little bit to be like a little bit more romantic. It's a yeah. little more you know a little more longing than Drake's one dance. So absolutely, that's an interesting. It's a very Bieber touch for the remix. Right. And this song is just in general just one dance. The Drake version, the remix. The song is not going away. This yeah. could definitely be the the song of the summer. Definitely a front runner for a song of the summer. <laughs> well, Brittany Spanos, thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you. And that was Good Times, Bad Times from Led Zeppelin. Probably <laughs> the most famous band that Rolling Stone famously trashed in the late 60s when they first came out. I'm here with Andy Green and Brian Hyatt. What's up? Hello. (laughs) We're going to talk about classic albums and artists that Rolling Stone trashed when they first came out. This is going to be a fun episode. Andy, you probably know on an issue-by-issue basis, you probably know Rolling Stone magazine better than anyone at Rolling Stone. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Flattered. Anyone who didn't actually work on that issue, you know, in the 70s. (laughs) And Brian Hyatt, you're a student of the magazine and rock criticism in general. (laughs) I know. What what, what are you a student of? I I, I work here. (laughs) You work here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, let's talk about Led Zeppelin. That is the okay. most that's been mentioned. You know that like gets jokes in like you know the almost Paul famous. Yeah. It, it's you and know this is almost a meme. I think what needs to be noted, which is not often said, is that the magazine at this point when when the first Zeppelin album was out, it was just two years old. It was a very new magazine. So this college student John Mendelssohn, he just mailed in a review of Zeppelin One that he published in his college newspaper. So it was and a reprint. It was a People reprint. should be blaming that college yeah, newspaper for those nasty something reviews. That he cut out of his own newspaper that he wrote, and then he got Rolling Stone a few weeks later and was shocked to just see it there. And it was the beginning of a war with Led Zeppelin because he just tore it to shreds. Shall I quote a yeah. bit from We should a, read a little bit yeah, from, okay. from the... Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Page, around whom the Zeppelin re- revolves, everything was a the, by the way, in the 60s. Yeah. It didn't matter. It was like, it was like, a, it was like the yeah. cream, the Pink Floyd. It was a rule. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Eric Clapton. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> is admittedly an extraordinarily proficient blues guitarist. That, yep. An yeah. explorer of his instrument's electronic capabilities. It's weird. No one says yeah. things like that anymore. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, he is also a very limited producer... Come on, man. And a writer of weak, unimaginative songs. And the Zeppelin album suffers from his having both produced and written most of it. And I'll just read a little little bit more. The album opens with a lot of guitar rhythm section exchanges. I guess that's guitar slash rhythm section exchanges in the fashion of Beck's Shapes of Things on Good Times, Bad Times, which might have been ideal. That's Jeff Beck, not uh, the later Beck for people at home. (laughs) Which might have been ideal for Yardbird's B-side, which, oof, back then, that was a a sick burn back then. I mean, it's like, right. like, man, that sounds like a Yardbird B-side. Everyone yeah. would be like, oh! oh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that was the, the critique yeah. back then. Like, yeah. everybody, a lot of people who are you know, serious about music were serious Yardbirds fans because they were the bearer of the blues, right? And, like, right. Led Zeppelin were the, they were, like, these kind of hacks yeah. who took, who, like, pumped it up to this crazy right. level. Jimmy Page was the Yardbirds veteran, obviously, right. who was now perverting it. But then, yeah. right. then um, you know, I'll just, uh, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You alternates between prissy Robert Plant's how yeah. vocals, fronting an acoustic guitar and driving choruses of the band running down a four-chord progression while John Bonham smashes his cymbals on every beat. 
The song is very dull in places. It's very <laughs> redundant and certainly not worth the six and a half minutes the Zeppelin gives it. Now, say what you will about John Mendelssohn. He clearly heard this album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, to his credit, Mendelssohn yeah. has been interviewed about this a, a bunch of times over the years, and he stands by, by this, yeah. right? Yeah. I have talked to him about it. I talked to him maybe eight years ago for our Zeppelin special issue, and he told me that he just went on to YouTube and watched a bunch of Zeppelin and stands by everything. Still hates them. Still thinks that they're pretentious and they suck. And at the time that Zeppelin One was new, the Jeff Beck group were like the hot band of former Yardbirds guitarist, and he thought that they were better. Right, and, and he, he was he, not the only one. Yeah. yeah. Well, for example, like Tom Petty. Yeah. Uh, had that album Mojo that had a little bit of to, to what to my yeah. relatively young yeah. ears sounded <laughs> like Zeppelin. He's like, oh no, no, I hate Zeppelin. Jeff Beck group. So yeah. it's like. <laughs> That yeah. for, for a certain like generation of hippie, yeah. the Jeff Beck group, which did have the combination of the riff and the howling vocals yeah. by uh, Rod Stewart, by the way, in case you don't know, yeah. but you know that was set the template. So this just seemed like a ripoff. But and then I will say, you know, listen, Zeppelin one, you know, it's, they, it's not as good as they got later. Yeah. You know, you can imagine right. someone hearing and that being relatively underwhelmed. I guess. You know? and, right. so, and at the time, yeah. it was really overhyped. There was a lot of hype about Zeppelin before it started. And some critics were just like, what is this shit? And there, there was a generational issue. These yeah. guys were a little bit older, and mm-hmm. Zeppelin was at that time for the children. Yeah. Um, right. So it's just hard right. to it's hard to put your mind in the place of where things were right. back then, because now it's all, especially now, like the line between Zeppelin and Pearl Jam is pretty thin. It's all just like classic rock with capital yeah. letters. But right. it's, there really were a lot of like, divisions and disagreements, and the, and the canon was being formed moment by yeah. moment. And it's interesting, because yeah. Mendelssohn was pretty young at the time, but he definitely was kind of reflecting some of the, a lot of the conventional right. wisdom. And by, what angered um, the band a lot is that we brought him back to review Zeppelin 2. Right, right. <laughs> the and next that, year, and he just trashed him again. So let's take a step back in a way, yeah. like, get at reasons why, like, critics often, or some, get, get records that, that become anointed classics 20 years later. I mean, Not wrong I just, or disagree. I mean, like, I guess I, I have a stake in this because I, you know, I was the record reviews editor for years, and Lord knows we got lots of records wrong. One, fam- you know, we got the the first Arcade Fire record, Funeral. We gave uh, only three stars. I mean, for me, that's a five star record. Yeah, I, I think one thing that was amazing about the Mendelssohn thing is that they brought him back to review the second Zeppelin record because right. that's one thing that we definitely would not do these days. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like my criteria when I was record reviews editor, and I think that still is true, is that you at least want to bring in a reviewer who would hear a classic. Uh, if the Arcade Fire made one, or if Led Zeppelin made one, or if Demi Lovato made one. And you're not doing your job if you're not getting someone who's going to give it a fair shot. And I think that was the institutional, I think everyone pretty much uh, agreed about Zeppelin is what was going on. And then, I mean, the, the other thing to remember is, you know, to this day, these reviews of Zeppelin 1 and 2 live on in, in Jimmy Page and Robert Plant's minds. They were so aware of them, and it was so hurtful. And I think there's a case to be made that these super negative responses only drove them to try to make more and more ambitious music that no one could possibly dismiss. So in a way, I think they should thank John Mendelssohn for staying yeah. to heaven. And, uh, you know, <laughs> or, or spirit, depending on yeah, what the spirit, legal... Yeah. Uh, you know, and remember, but it yes. took Cameron anyway. Crowe until 1975 to make peace with them because they refused to be on the cover at first. It was this pissed them off for years. Cameron Crowe, who was of course, you know, famously very right. young and, and was of the generation that saw Led Zeppelin yeah, and as gods. Them, yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, All let's, right. So what's the next one on the docket? Do you want to do greetings from Asbury Park? Should we do greetings? Sure. Yeah. yeah. This was the first Bruce Springsteen record, 1973. He was being hyped a lot as the new Bob Dylan. 
and we had Lester Bangs do the review. The and great Lester Bangs, the great one, Lester of the great, Bangs. one of the greatest rock critics of all the time. The album was out in January. We didn't even review it until that July. Right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, this I mean, is pre-internet. Pre- yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Things were slower back then. <laughs> right. And and it's a you know it's it's very interesting. So Lester Bangs is you know perhaps the most famous uh, rock critic of all time, and you have Bruce Springsteen, who's the most famous Bruce Springsteen of all time. And, <laughs> yeah. and and so here on Bruce's very first album, and this is a chance. You know, could Lester see the entire future? Could he see that this would become? And like, absolutely not. He he was he delivered this fascinating sort of idiosyncratic review that wasn't negative, but just saw him as a as a curiosity and the. And the, um, you know, some of it is like basically incomprehensible to people now because there's a lot of references to P.F. Sloan, who was a, a, a sort of seen as a, a New Dylan in the '60s, yeah. um, and, and so he wrote Eve, Eve of Destruction and yeah. stuff. So, so the boy howdy, the first thing the world <laughs> needs is a P.F. Sloan for 1973, and you can start revving up your adrenaline, kids, because he's here in the person of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> well, not not exactly the kind of uh, blurb that Bruce was going to use in the. Uh, well, I guess I mean I, at the time. Rapping people, calling people a new Dylan in a kind yeah. of a bad way was not uncommon. I mean, like there are lots of new Dylans, and so I think a lot. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen did get that tag. Well, it, no, well, it was given because to him. Columbia was promoting him right. as a new Dylan. Is right. That's right. Was, so that's what Lester was responding to. Got, but it's but it's just very funny because when you read it now, and it's just sound, like if you don't know who P.F. Sloan is, and if right. it, and you know he's Bruce Springsteen, it just sounds pretty crazy. But right. I, I, but I will say, I mean, again, just like Mendelssohn, I mean, Lester really did listen hard to Bruce because listen to this part. He's been influenced a lot by the band. His arrangements tend to take on a Van Morrison tinge every now and then. And he sort of Qatar mumbles his ditties in a disgruntled mush mouth, sort of like Robbie Robertson on Quaaludes with Dylan barfing down the back of his neck. (laughs) I mean, like... Listen, Lester was, was good. And then, then this is the part that's stuck in my head, and I'll stop reading. Uh, because what makes Bruce totally unique and cosmically surfeiting is his words. Hot damn, what a passo o verbiage. And that, those words, yeah. hot damn, what a passo o verbiage, have stuck with me. I could I recite yeah. those. And, it's, and listen, he, he also, on the one hand, like, wow, he didn't understand. He didn't magically see that this would become, quote, unquote, Bruce Springsteen. On the other hand, he really did address what was there before him, which was this dude, like, just spewing out words and, and, and throwing them on the right. Morrison arrangements. You yeah, know? it's a... Yeah. And, and even Bruce would say the album is a compromise, whereas he wanted a band, the label wanted it to be more acoustic. Right. He was using a rhyming dictionary at the time, so, and Blinded by the Light is just this endless verbiage, as he points out, but it was a weird way to write a song, and I think Bruce acknowledges that he got much better after this record, as much as I love this record. Well, I'm I'm happy that Lester kind of he like trashed it in an entertaining way rather yes. than like gave it like kind kind of a mealy mouth three stars or something. You know, if you're if you're gonna go down in flames or take a you know a, a contrary view, you might as well have fun doing it. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say he he trashed it. I think he was just sort of reckoning with it. Like I think it's like I mean, it's like a you, playful dismissal. Kind of yeah. yeah. If you translate it from Lester. Ish to English, it's sort of like it's like wow, there's something here. Not sure what, like right. not the new Dylan. And then at the end, interestingly, I sort of just noticed this passage. He points out that he's really good looking at the end. One look at the pick on the back will tell you he's got the glam to go places in this Gollywood lawn world to boot, whatever that means. But I guess <laughs> he's good looking. Um, but then maybe we'll do this uh, review of the Queen album, Jazz, and we're talking about it not so much because of this specific album, but because, man, Queen, I- I'll say when I first got to Rolling Stone, like in my first two weeks, I happened to talk to Brian May on the phone, and he said, um, you know, how long have you been there? 
And I was like, like two weeks? And he's like, oh, good. Oh, thank God. <laughs> okay, like, we thank can talk. God. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Because, you know, basically it's like there was this talk about a band that really felt that we, we didn't appreciate them. So, I mean, we, well, we, they, yeah. I, I think they just didn't just feel it. They knew it. They knew, it. <laughs> well, they knew that we I didn't think, appreciate them in the 70s, think, for sure. I think they were lumped into the to other prog bands when Queen are not really prog at all, but these big, bombastic bands are playing arenas with smoke machines and everything. We sort of trashed most of them. It just wasn't seen as the critical choice at the time, that kind of music. It wasn't James Taylor. It was for kids and it was ridiculous and it just seemed just like kiss or something and i think there was who i like yeah and i mean listen I, and actually i think this is this is a, a powerful put down of a classic band if you uh, you know this is a review dave from marsh. dave marsh not of a classic yeah. album yeah. Queen, queen jazz but like yeah you, you talked about a couple of graphs where it yeah. really goes at them and there's no jazz on queen's new record in case fans of either were worried about the defilement of an icon queen hasn't the imagination to play jazz Queen hasn't the imagination, for that matter, to play rock and roll. Oh. <laughs> Jazz is just more of the same dull pastiche that has dominated all this British supergroup's work. The tight guitar-based drums, heavy metal cliches, light classical pianistics. That's a good word, pianistics. Yeah. Right. Four-part harmonies that make the four freshmen sound funky. That is Ouch. unfair. They and have good Ouch. harmonies. And Freddie Mercury's throat-scratching lead vocals. Oh. Then I'll just, just jump down. He talks about Fat Bottom Girls objectifying women, which is, of course, very funny. And that's given, a shitty Freddie. Well, hey. anyway, but it's just yeah. funny since that, that really wasn't Freddie Mercury's particular interest in life. You know I mean? That, no. that wasn't like... So, so then... The, the last paragraph is actually quite famous. Um, whatever its claims, Queen isn't here just to entertain. This group has come to make it clear exactly who is superior and who is inferior. Its anthem, We Will Rock You, is a marching order. You will not rock us. We will rock you. <laughs> Indeed, Queen may be the first truly fascist rock band. Wow. Yeah. The, the whole thing makes me wonder why anyone would indulge these creeps in their polluting ideas. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, I mean, that is an inc- <laughs> wow. But I mean, imagine it, no one really writes stuff like that anymore. I mean, it'd be really interesting to read a takedown of a pop artist like that, you know, uh, actually. And I mean, some of this this stayed with some of the band. I mean, after they didn't play um, South, or they did play South yeah, Africa. They played Sun City and got all yeah. yeah. the shit for. I'm sure some of this stuff, this, these thoughts, are in the back of people's heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, but, but it's it's definitely interesting. And it's just. I, it just kind of seems not like right. <laughs> yeah. In, well. in retrospect, like it just you know I think I think maybe just knowing the the fact that that Freddie Mercury was a closeted gay man who was singing from that perspective, and was you know singing for the for um, on behalf of. Uh, people who are marginalized and just knowing that stuff kind of like, it really does kind of shift the whole idea of what you're seeing. I, right. you know, I imagine maybe if you did see him and saw a whole stadium going, we will rock you and you're thinking, and if you came from a certain perspective, yeah, maybe it is a little bit disturbing, you know? Right. right. Yeah, it's a fud rock song. He's ridiculous. It's, <laughs> you know, listen, I think, I think that's fantastic writing, yes. uh, you know, and, 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 you know, very like clear thinking in its, Goal of taking down a band, and I, and I think the world could use more of that net right now. Sure. But it, but it is interesting. That's how we saw Queen of all, all, all yeah, people. Sure. We move on. I think we should do High Voltage by ACDC. Okay. You, you, you okay. Another band, ACDC. You know, another band were infamously trashed by lots of rock critics. You know, Rolling Stone and elsewhere. 
and this is by the, the great Billy Altman, who, who I knew and was a great guy, but uh, not a fan of ACDC. Those concerned with the future of hard rock may take solace in knowing that with the release of the first U.S. album by these Australian gross-out champions, the genre has unquestionably hit its all-time low. This reads, by the way, like one of the fake reviews in Spinal Tap of Spinal Tap. (laughs) Right. Things things can only get better. At least I hope so. (laughs) A band whose live act features a lead guitarist, Angus Young, leering menacingly while dressed in schoolboy beanie and knickers, ACDC has nothing to say musically. Two guitars, bass, and drums, all goose-stepping together, here we are with the fascists again, in mindless three-chord formations. Lyrically, their universe begins and ends with the words, I, me, and my. Mind. Lead singer Bon Scott spits out his vocals with a truly annoying aggression, which I suppose is the only way to do it when all you seem to care about is being a star so that you can get laid every night. And that, friends, comprises the sum total of themes discussed on this record. Stupidity bothers me. Calculated stupidity offends me. Again, I mean, it's like he's not wrong. <laughs> sure he <laughs> right. is. Sure he's, he's wrong. wrong. I mean, they like, are calculated stupidity. He's but articulating a point of view, and yeah. it's like, you know, again, I think there is the generational thing in the sense that, like, you know, we're only the first generation of rock critics, and Billy Altman is great, too. You know, he wrote a lot of great reviews. Oh, of course. And the goal of this overall is not to trash any particular writer. We're just talking about kind of what happens with reviews sometimes. But, you know, a lot of Rolling Stone came out of the generation where, you know, artists were supposed to say something, you know, and like, or or break some. Big balls, dirty big balls. Yeah, that's not. (laughs) And and a lot of writers, you know, know, who were fans of 60s, you know, rock saw the 70s as the first time where, like, bands were just stars for the sake of being stars, or or so they thought. Right? Would you say yeah, that's accurate? Yeah, you know? and, I, and I think ACDC, like, listen, some of the stuff on their early albums is pretty indefensible, actually. It's I mean, juvenile, but uh, it's fun. It, it's, if you really delve into it, some of it is. I, I was surprised, frankly, when they played Coachella that, that, that um, some of the younger cohort didn't dig into their lyrics and get a little freaked out. But, you know, but yeah, it's, listen, all, well, it, it's I, all fun I, and Well, I think they know what, like, a lot of, like, ACDC fans know that now, like, if you're reviewing them according to the lyrics, you're listening to the wrong thing. Right. right. Absolutely. Right. And, yeah. and, and, but it, he's right, though, in the sense that there is an element of calculated stupidity to what they do. But, but the, the thing is, now we might say, but it's gloriously calculated stupidity. Yes, exactly. Stupidity, right? That's, that's exactly what it is. That, that, that's why it's like 45 years later, they're that's still playing the, stadiums. You know, that's always the good trick is now you just say, gloriously Moronic, and then you're then it's good, you know. <laughs> just just add glor- gloriously fascist. Yeah, that, right. That's that's, that's right. why you know. Well, how we, about we move a little? Let's fast forward a little bit in the nineties. Maybe get a little bit of alt rock. Should we uh, do in Nirvana here. now? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about this is uh, Nirvana. One. This is a famous one. Nirvana's Nevermind. We gave it three stars in the magazine. I think that has been. I think it's been corrected on the website. I think it's got maybe yeah. strangely four stars on if the website. I'm not exactly now, sure. Four stars because I'm, it's obviously a five star class. On the details, I heard this writer was given a cassette tape of the record and had a very short time period to digest it and review right. it. And that's what often happens, that you have some brand new album that you never heard. You have a very tight deadline, and you need to make an assessment that will last forever. Right. But, but and there's it, always, yeah. of course, there's always the thing where it's like, you know, how many records have all of us heard where we haven't? realize yeah. that they were classics until yeah, the 10th listen or the 20th yeah, exactly, listen. Exactly, yeah. which is the problem with, with, with all record reviews. Right. Is or six <laughs> months later. Yeah. yeah. But again, I'm drawn to the part of the review where he seems to get it like, you know, pretty right. So he says, uh, given, given the small corner of public taste that non-metal guitar rock now commands. So note that. How could he know <laughs> that Nirvana <laughs> would basically single-handedly expand 
the space that that would command. I mean, right. that, that, yeah. that's what you. That's why you can't see a paradigm shift coming. So he's saying, you know, given that the Washington State Trio's version of the truth is probably as credible as anyone. See, he knew it was good. And a, dy- a dynamic mix of sizzling power chords, manic energy, and sonic restraint, Nirvana erects sturdy melodic structures, sing-along hard rock as defined by groups like the Replacement Pixies and Sonic Youth, but then attacks them with frenzied screaming and guitar havoc. Now, that's a precisely correct description of Nirvana, right? Like, uh, he completely right. nailed what Nirvana was. So I, so I don't, you know, and then, then I, it's weird, I'm reading the parts that could be the four-star rave. Nirvana's undistinguished 1989 debut, Bleach, relied on warmed-over 70s metal riffs. And listen, I don't... Do you guys disagree with that? I mean, I don't think Bleach is that great. But but the thrashing Nevermind boasts an adrenalized pop heart and incomparably superior material. Captured with roaring clarity by co-producer Butch Vig. See, these are like, huh. so, these are all so it's crazy. Like, well, it's well, more like I you think, know, this. All right, well, this yeah. is also the thing, and we should. This yeah. is another caveat. We yeah. should know that often the writers of these reviews did not give the star rating. The editors are in charge of the star ratings. Yeah, uh, and so who knows what this review was originally and filed it, at? And you know, maybe the record reviews editor at the time listened to it and and decided they didn't love it. Yeah, and it's also like there, there's a the thing. It's like it's very hard to make the leap. When you're, you know, back then you were getting like a big pile of CDs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and pro- or maybe advanced cassettes, probably promo cassettes. Uh, and you listen to them and like one is like, wow, this sounds really good. This sounds good. I love it. You know, but, but a lot of music sounds pretty good, you right. know? And it's like you just – that there was that Teenage Fan Club album the year before. That sounded pretty good too. Yeah, that didn't right. change the world, you know? And so it's right. like – so it's, it's – how many people are going to take the leap and be like – this is going to change everything. Right. This is an instant classic. I love it. I know you barely heard of this band. Their last album kind of was just nothing. But it, and it's I, there's just very few. There are cases, and God bless critics. And sometimes people. There's the other thing where people go nuts and say something's classic when it, it turns out to be nothing. There's a lot of that too. Right. But and it, every once in a while we yeah. get it right. But you're right. It's a con- it's a conversation. Yeah. But what I like looking at all these reviews is look how hard all of these critics listen to these records because yeah. they got fundamental truths right whether you disagree with the conclusions they got but but you know that i think that's really admirable like, right. like i mean look, look at this look, you know he he had like you know a Three days or whatever to listen to Nevermind, and he nailed all of the correct influences and the the core of their sound, and I, I think that's awesome, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. And this poor guy has been eviscerated for the past twenty five years with this one review. It's in every Nirvana book. It says, and the Rolling Stone gave it three stars, and it's in. Why Rob? It's super famous rock critic, and yeah. he's, And the truth is, fundamentally, he didn't get anything wrong at all. No. If you ask me, you know. Right. Yeah. Other than the failure to predict the future, you know. All right, let's move on to another uh, 90s alt-rock record, uh, Weezer's Pinkerton. Yeah, I think in the history of the magazine, this is one of the reviews I hear most about on Twitter and Facebook and comments because Pinkerton has become one of the most worshipped albums of the 90s. It's revered in every possible way, and we put it on our critics list as one of the three worst albums of all of the entire year. Right. The actual yeah. review is like kind of a, a gentleman's th- three stars, right? And right. it's kind of benign, but yeah. like, you know, mixed, you know. But then you're right. We, we call it one of the worst albums of the year. Yeah, which is very unfair. But I think that the first album was so... There were so many there were so many big singles on it. There was Buddy Holly, Satan. So there were songs that the first time you heard them, they were so catchy. And and this was more introspective. It was darker, and it bombed. I mean, at the time, 
the fans agreed that is no good. They didn't buy it. It was a commercial flop. Yeah. It wasn't what people, people were it now, expecting. But yeah. they didn't like it back then. How dare you make the same mistake that we made? Is basically <laughs> what the fans are saying. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, basically. It, it wasn't until kind of in the 2000s it, and emo. It, when, it started in like the very late 90s. It was like three long years out at the time when it became this cult classic. Right. And, and then Rivers disowned it. And he called the fans <laughs> that enjoy it little bitches. And the more he pushed back against it, the more that they clung to it tighter and tighter. It was this weird thing for a while. It was like Smile or something, you know. This was like forbidden music. They wouldn't play it in concert. Andy encouraged me to read to Rivers Cuomo on the phone. Yeah. Because I, I can't even remember, but so was it that he had previously said bad things and now he was saying good yes. things? Okay, so he, he tended to say, oh, I never trashed Pinkerton. Yeah. So Andy had me read to Rivers on the phone, like, the exact horrible thing he said about Pinkerton, which, which was uh, uncomfortable. Um, yeah. He's like, oh, you know, I say things, you know. <laughs> we say things. Um, but so I, I wanted to read one part of the review. That'll make yeah. our reviewers feel better, <laughs> yeah, right, that right. Rivers Cuomo got it wrong, too. That, yeah. That's right. Well, that's a whole other, yeah, that's another interesting thing. But, but I was struck by one part of the review. Um, as a songwriter, the band's singer and guitarist, Rivers Cuomo, takes a juvenile tack on personal relationships. Throughout yeah. Pinkerton, he pines for all the girls he can't have, the girls he can have but shouldn't, the girls who are no good for him, and the girls about whom he just isn't sure. Yeah. And so basically, what I like is that the writer, Rob O'Connor, sort of jumped ahead past the fan embrace to the current moment where actually a lot of people are taking a feminist perspective and, and questioning the way Rivers depicts his relationship with women in his songs. And he kind of got it then. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of juvenile. Like, yeah. these women are just objects for you for your own kind right. of psychodrama, and that's not cool. And so, God, you know, Rob, Rob, Rob O'Connor was woke back in 98, yeah, so a, God bless him. It's a bit creepy yeah. at times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on a bunch of the songs, the context was he was at Harvard at the time, and he was like... 25 or something and is just having these weird crushes on all these girls that want nothing to like, do with them. And the album is about that. He actually invited a girl to a Green Day concert. She said, sorry, I have not heard of that group and just walked away from him. The album yeah. should be called, like, Why Didn't I Just Tell People I Was in Weezer? <laughs> yeah. that, that, I never got that. But that's like, like, I mean. He had a beard and a limp and he was the he weird old like, guy. I I sang Buddy Holly, and that would have helped. But yeah. anyway, okay. Well, I mean, I'm off track here. <laughs> but I mean, I think the, the the this is certainly not an excuse for our reviewers over the years. But I mean, I think the it idea is, is it, it is. is. We're trying. <laughs> this is part, try. part mea culpa, of, uh, you know, for the magazine, but partly like it, the fact is like the idea. Very few like classic albums, with some exceptions. But you know, but many classic albums don't become classics until years later. No matter as much as we'd like yeah. to say that, you know, we it's, like we get everything right the first time out. A review really is like kind of just like the first draft right. of, and of history, and often you know like the you know Pinkerton you know is a good example because it didn't become a classic until you kind of a whole like genre kind of enveloped around it, you know, and and uh, you know with the exception of maybe some things like you know Sergeant Pepper, you know, was was uh, kind was of everybody maybe overpraised at first, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the worst you know, album. but Pet Sounds on the other hand, exactly, you yes. know, wasn't. So the moral of the story is no one knows anything. Uh, <laughs> And just, you know, give us well, a break. And I mean, hopefully you know, the best you're doing is you're saying something smart at the right. time. Or something, in, you're bringing something insightful and, and you're bringing your, your point of view. Yeah. And you're listening hard. Yeah. You're right. 
And these bands were really hurt because pre-internet and everything, the review of Rolling Stone was a really, really big deal. Right. There were fewer forms back then for people to express their opinions right. publicly about music. There right. was almost none. You, you, you weren't able to get on Twitter the day after the review came yeah. out. And, no. And, and, you would and buy Rolling Stone, and if they, if, if they called you a fascist, it was just like, what the hell? You just had to take it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and right. you couldn't tweet back or anything like they like they do now. Sometimes right. <laughs> you just had to wipe your tears away with you know your million dollar bank account. But yes, right. yes, hopefully, yeah, hopefully, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, Andy Green, Brian Hyatt, thanks for coming on. This has been fun. Thank of you. Course. And that was Buck Cherry's Too Drunk. Maybe the first time Buck Cherry's ever been played on the podcast. Uh, we're here for our reader mail uh, section. I'm here with uh, Hank Steamer, senior editor, RollingStone.com. How's it going? How's it going? Thanks for coming Pretty on. Pretty good. Uh, Hank, you were the editor of this piece by writer Jason Heller uh, on 10 music publicity stunts gone wrong. Yep. Uh, which I quite enjoyed. My favorite one of all of these uh, stunts is probably by Buck Cherry. And it was related to the song we just played. Do you want to tell us what the story was with this? Yeah, there was an instance in, in 2008 when, you know, th- there's all these controversies over, like, music getting leaked. And at this time, you know, Buck Cherry, like, claimed that they were a victim of, you know, music leakage. And there was a quote where they said, honestly, we hate it when this shit happens because we want our fans to have any new songs first. So there was this kind of self-righteous statement. And then it became apparent later that the group's manager... Oh, had leaked the song. And it was like somebody tracked them down through like an IP address or something like that. Like it was proven that this was like coming from inside. Yeah, like if you're going to blame the kids on leaking something, right. you better watch out. Right. They might look you up. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it was just. That's hilarious. It, it was, you know, sort of like a spinal tap moment or, you know, completely absurd. Right. Yeah. There was one interesting letter about Elvis joining the army is kind of mentioned as a publicity stunt. And this reader, uh, Cecilia73, says, you know, reasonably, you know, Elvis did not join the army, he was drafted, so it can hardly be considered a PR stunt. Can you imagine how the greatest star in the world felt about a two-year hiatus from his career, not knowing whether he would have one to go back to, but he had no choice, and the fact that he carried out his duties in an exemplary manner says a lot for his character, and made some of his greatest music after he came back from the army. So you, you had did a little uh, research into this, Hank. I did, yeah. It's pretty complicated. I mean, Cecilia 73 is correct in in this assertion that he was drafted, but there were some sort of loopholes that that Elvis could have taken advantage of. Like there were these sort of different like categories he could have been placed under that would allow him to either basically just be a performer and do that as part of his service or the, apparently the Navy offered to create a special Elvis Presley company that would just be like him and his friends and he could just sort of like take it easy. But like his manager did want to sort of like re- rehabilitate his, his image, like through sending him off, you know, to the army and saying like, you know, if you do this, you're going to look better because everyone was kind of like, you know, there's this uproar of him being kind of lewd or. Colonel Tom Parker yeah. actually encouraged him. He thought it would be a good career move to go into the yeah. army. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a way, you know, it's kind of both. Like right. he was drafted, but it was also like his manager probably could have gotten him out of it, but decided not right. to. So maybe like short of a stunt, like he deserves some credit, but the fact that there was some thinking, publicity-minded yes. yes, thinking there was, involved. Yeah, there was right. some strategy. This is All right, so we have another uh, piece of reader mail from somebody named Magnus Hagermir. They should have sent Pat Boone to the army instead. Elvis between 23 and 25 might have been his best years that was stolen from us. Nuts. 
Okay. We have another uh, letter from someone, a Madonna fan named St. Rye. Madonna's sex is hard is a hard-to-find collector's item. Not so bad after 34 years. All right, fair enough. You know, I mean, like, not everybody would have agreed, you know, that it was a pure publicity stunt, but that's different strokes. Maybe it's time um, to revisit Madonna's sex book. You know? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> there was something missing that I was a little surprised about. Um, we didn't include the uh, the infamous Rihanna jet plane trip. I don't know if you remember that, but that... Slightly. That involved... Uh, Rihanna uh, took a bunch, like maybe hundreds of journalists on kind of a world tour, like, uh, uh, and went to uh, seven cities in different continents. I think Berlin, London, with a couple hundred journalists on a 747 or other jumbo jet in the back. Uh, and the, a lot of the journalists kind of like had, had a mutiny. You know, and they, they realized after they got get on this plane, which seemed like a great idea, uh, that they were actually just going to be flying and sitting on the tarmac for most of this trip right. and not going to be able to see Rihanna. Uh, and so it, it kind of had a different different effect. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm sure uh, I'm sure everybody has a publicity stunt that they wish could have made it on this list. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's yeah, there's there's a lot of and this whole thing was actually sort of like. The, the topic came up because, and, and this was really just ended up being like a news blip for one day, but this band Yacht, who had created this, like, they basically said that they were the victim of, like, you know, a stolen sex tape, and then it turned right. out that they had, they, that they had, like, you know, fabricated this entire thing, and then they got a lot of, it was just like, a, you know, it was, it was immediate backlash. That was certainly this year's kind of biggest publicity stunt gone wrong, yeah. for sure, that uh, they got a lot of flack for that because a lot of writers thought it was, like, insensitive to people who had been victims of, like, revenge porn. and Exactly. And, uh, all right, well, you know, maybe this, like, segment can serve as a cautionary tale. For some, for some artists, <laughs> yeah. Don't don't fake a sex tape uh, on a, yeah. on a plane with a bunch of journalists or yeah, anything. Don't don't yeah. do any of this stuff. <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, uh, Hag Stieber, thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot. And that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, leave a review on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.